Okay, let's see here. That looks good. Hebrews 10.27. But I'll read verse 26, which we studied last week to give us the context. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains the sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment, the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Last, for those of you, Hebrews 10.27 is our verse. If you weren't here last week, let me summarize what we discussed. We, we went into Numbers 15 and saw that there's a distinction between willful or defiant sin and uh, unintentional sin. Unintentional not meaning that a person isn't responsible, but that a person is agreeing that God's Word is true, that His law is valid, and intends by God's grace to follow it, but falls short. There's atonement for those sins, according to Numbers 15. Defiant is a person who says, I have a right to do whatever I see fit. Who's God to tell me what to do? There's no atonement for that sin. Okay, that's the summary. That's the summary of what we talked about last week. All right. Now, in verse 27, but look at the contrast here. It is an e- there's an either or here in between verse 26 and verse 27. The either or is either one finds a sacrifice for sins, or there is no more sacrifice but this judgment. So it's either a sacrifice for sins. Or terrifying expectation of judgment. It's one or the other. There's no third option or there's no neutral ground. There's either a sacrifice or judgment. And certainly we would not want to fall under judgment. So we need to avail ourselves of the sacrifice that God has provided for sins. Now in verse 27 uh, there's an allusion, I believe, to Isaiah 26:11. Norma, could you look up Isaiah 26:11 for us? Yeah, it talks about this fire that devours God's enemies. I was going to quote William Lane here. The the results of a calculated, persistent renunciation of the truth received are specified in verses 26b and 27. Uh, An offering for sin is no longer necessary. The reason a sin offering is no longer required is that Christ by a single perfect sacrifice has decisively put away sin. So when it says there is no longer any sacrifice for sin, this follows because only the only sacrifice that can remove defilement has been repudiated, and the sufficient sacrifice of Christ cannot be repeated. That was an earlier argument. Remember, Jesus died once for all. Okay. What remains is an inevitable, terrifying expectation of judgment. This describes a religious dread that reflects in anticipation upon the destruction that must follow from such a display of contempt for God. 
So, a failure to avail oneself in faith and obedience to the one sacrifice that God made, which is the one that Christ paid for our sins, leads one to a place where he or she is facing a horrific future, which is God's judgment, God's fiery judgment. Okay, I have some cross-references. Sam, number 1635. And Cindy, Deuteronomy 32.43. And Steve, Isaiah 33.14. Who's behind Jack? Is it Joseph? Are you Joseph? Josh. I know it started with a J. Do you want to do one? No? Okay. Let's go over here in Barb Sisler. Zephaniah 3.8. Yeah, I know. I gave you an easy one to find. <laughs> I think it's in the Bible somewhere. Zephaniah 3.8. And Bert, Bert Luke 23.30. And Leif, Revelation 6.15-17. Alright, uh, Sam, number 16.35. Fire consumed them. I think, if I remember right, Numbers 16, was that about Korah? Does it mention Korah in that chapter? You notice in the context? Yeah, Yeah, Korah. What happened was they decided that uh, they didn't have to do things God's way and they didn't have to listen to Moses. They were going to do their own approach to God on their own terms. It didn't work out so good, did it? So the lesson in the story is God determines how we come to Him, not us. We don't decide, well, I'm going to do however I see fit. we got to come to God on His terms. Okay, Deuteronomy 32.43. Okay, again, that's about a vengeance on His adversaries. Then Isaiah 33:14. Okay, that's another uh, passage that uses the idea of a consuming fire for how God would be in His opposition to His adversaries and enemies. And if those enemies end up to be his own people, like when Israel was in apostasy, they have the same concern. And that would be the application in Hebrews here. Okay, uh, Zephaniah 3.8. Wow. I wonder what Robert Schuler does with that verse. <laughs> so as he preaches on that at the Crystal Cathedral. <laughs> yeah, so. Hey, welcome. Just the fact of being a non-believer would put you in the category of an enemy of God. Yes. That's, that's a good point. Brian, Brian said if you're just an unbeliever, you're an enemy of God. And that's one of the 
important aspects of the law, law and the gospel that we need to emphasize that people don't get out of this modern touchy-feely version. The Bible says that if we are saved, we're reconciled enemies. Uh, where is that? Okay. Uh, friendship of the world, the Bible says, is hostility toward God. And I think that the common conception is just the average religious person is the good old Joe and really, you know, the good Lord idea. And, and so people who don't know Jesus don't think that they're enemies. They think Jesus is okay. Right? And so, how are they going to be convinced that, that they're enemies if we don't preach the law? Amen. I was, yeah, I was just... Oh, Ryan's going to talk about that, by the way, in his sermon. He called me yesterday, and we kind of did a little walkthrough in his sermon. He's in Galatians 3. I said, I envy you. You've got such great passage to preach. Galatians 3. But it basically, you either are under the law and cursed, or you are a recipient of the promised blessing. Amen. Now, where is this idea of reconciled enemies? I think it's in Romans 5. I was quoting, I was quoting James, where it talks about friendship of the world is hostility toward God. And, well, even the idea of having peace with God. Well, just Romans, let me look at Romans 5, verse 1. Here, now, people wouldn't understand this if they don't understand how to look at a range of meanings. But it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, the term peace has a range of meanings in the Bible. Right? It can mean mental serenity. It can mean just a lack of conflict. But it also can mean the reconciliation of enemies. Now, when I, when I went to, first went to seminary, the first year was in the fall of 1992. The, one of the first classes I took was hermeneutics from Dr. Stein back in the good old days when we still had him at Bethel Seminary. One of, one of the finest New Testament uh, scholars in the evangelical world, Robert Stein. And uh, one of the first uh, assignments he gave us was to take the word peace in Romans 5 and verse 1, do a range of meaning study and come back and tell us what it means in this particular verse. And the reason he gave us that one is most people get it wrong. They think it means have just sort of serenity of mind. But what it, I did the study and wrote, wrote my little paper and said, I believe it means reconciled enemies. And that was the right answer. Reconciled enemies. Uh-huh. And I used to think that, you know, Christ's death on the cross reconciled, in other words, made God a friend of ours and us a friend of God. But actually, God loved us while we were still enemies. And it's the sacrifice on the cross that allows us to come to God, not as enemies. 
it, 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 it allows us to overcome our hatred for God and our animosity and our uh, enmity with God. And it says, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and he gave this son while we're still enemies of his. Yeah, that's true. So it's in his act of love to right. his enemies. And, and that's why when Christ says, you know, be perfect as your father is perfect in heaven, he says, pray for your enemies, bless your enemies, just as God did to you when he sent his son when you were an enemy of his. Amen, and, exactly. You know, it, it's so unnatural, it's so counter to what the world says. And I think in the end times, there's going to be this great push for world peace. And we can't get off the track. It's not world peace. It's <laughs> peace with God yeah, that, yeah. that we get through Jesus Christ. Right, exactly. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. You're not going to have peace in the world. I totally agree. Now, in Romans 5, notice part of how I figured out what peace with God meant in verse 1 was looking at the context. Look at verse 10 of Romans 5. For if while we were, what? Enemies. 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 Yes, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. How much more, having been reconciled, we should be saved by His life. So there it tells you Paul's meaning. Peace means reconciled enemies. Now, the fact is, hardly anybody who is lost believes themselves to be God's enemy. If you did a Gallup poll on this, are you God's enemy? You wouldn't find it. Hardly anybody, maybe some atheists who don't believe in God. You know, there's this website, infidels.org. You know, I'd, I'd say they, you could go there and find some people that were God's enemies that know, so, know they are. But, I mean, your average per person doesn't think so. Yes, Sandy. Well, when Jesus says, pray for your enemies, does he mean the enemies in all those that are not Christians? Or what do I think of it as my enemy enemy? Well, I think that for us, it would probably be people that we know to be our enemies. But when it's, when it's God and people, it's everybody. But for us, what he means is that we, our tendency is to be vengeful. And and the Bible says that we need to realize that God was kind to us, like Mike was saying. He showed us kindness when we were his enemies. So we ought to show kindness. God is, what does it say? Um, in, uh, God is kind to evil and ungrateful men. Doesn't it say that? I think that Luke 6. Yes. Yeah, and I was just listening. I missed it when it was live, but Jan had a great show with this guy when they were talking about Roman, the new pope in Roman Catholicism. So I was listening on a CD here yesterday in my truck, and they were really talking about look, there were two billion people watching this funeral. And they're, oh, he was this man of peace, and he's going to reconcile the Muslims and Catholics and Protestants, everybody. And that's the theme out there in the world. And they're looking for some nice, warm, fuzzy religious experience where everybody feels like they have peace. So the fact is, the Bible teaches us that there's one issue that's got to be resolved. Everything else is secondary, if it's even on the table. 
And that's the fact that we're God's enemies and how we're going to be reconciled to God. And if that doesn't happen, all this other stuff is a, is a sidetrack. And ultimately, the man of peace will be Antichrist. Amen. And he's not going to help people have peace with God. No. Yes. Last week, I was over on the university campus listening to Todd Field and his evangelism. Oh, yeah. How's that? Well, Todd does a very good job. But the general consensus around the crowd of students that is there is that, well, Christ, Christianity is okay for you because you believe it. But for the Hindu, Hinduism is okay for them because they believe it. And you can't tell a Hindu that they're wrong. Okay. And the general consensus around the campus is they're looking forward to unity within the religious world. Right. And if you're speaking out against that, as Christianity is the only way, they're going to be on the tail. Well, that's absolutely correct, because that's the postmodern relativistic view of reality. Everybody's truth is valid in their own mind. They're waiting for the Antichrist. Oh, I, I know it. Now, here's the latest trend now in Christian evangelism that I'm hearing about. And that, and Rick Warren's peace plan would be a good example of it. The, the latest trend is this. They're not going to listen to our preaching, so what we need to do is do good deeds that everybody is interested in. And so, uh, there was a thing, I got a link sent to me, this one pastor in a certain city got all the Christians in the city motivated and go in and they're going to paint the public schools, classrooms, and they're going to hand out clothes, and they're going to do all this stuff, which is okay. I mean, we should do alms, all right? But they're not preaching the gospel. And so the world will be our friends if we're giving them something they want. But as soon as you start preaching exclusive claims of Christianity, they're not going to like it. No. All right, and, they're, and then they're, because they're transgressing this thing that you're talking about, Dean, that we're saying our way is right and our way is true. Now, their theory, and so I've talked to some of these guys, and they say, well, yeah, we know, but once they see how nice we are, then they're more likely to listen to our message. Well, you know, it doesn't work that way. No. I mean, it, it's fine. I believe in giving out food and clothing and showing compassion, but the gospel must be preached. Amen. And if it means offense to people, so be it. Uh, and so it's both and, but if, but if you emphasize the one and then change the gospel, so I want to get back to my thought of enemies, alright? I almost got off track. That, that never would happen here. Uh, now, we're, we're agreeing that the average religious or non-religious person doesn't consider themselves God's enemy by nature. So how are they going to find out they're God's enemy? Tell them through, through the gospel. The, the law. The law. The law and the gospel. And that's what, and, and Todd does that. Yeah, that's what Todd Friel's very good at with his evangelism, is getting, showing people that, no, you're God's enemy. You're a lawbreaker. And you need the gospel. Yes. Well, you know, you may be, at the worst case scenario, Well, if you look at the preaching of the apostles, uh, they brought this fact home to people. For instance, in Acts 17, when you have Paul preaching to the Athenian philosophers, he says, God, he told them, God furnished proof so that you're without excuse. He raised a man from the dead. Amen. 
Therefore, God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. So he brought home the fact that they can't just... They were very open-minded. They were like these students at the U, uh, Dean. They, they, were, they were saying, that, well, we got the unknown God, we'll worship Him. It's interesting, the word in the Greek, unknown, is agnostic. Agnosticos. So we're agnostics. we got an unknown God, and we got the God of this and the God of that. They had a plurality of gods. And, they, and, and so, so Paul comes in and preaches an exclusive message. No, there's only one God. And he, and he came in the person of Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, and then they rejected him. They didn't like the message. So what did Paul do? Go and uh, devise a plan B and went back with a new strategy? Did he come back with a, well, okay, you don't have to accept my preaching, but I'm going to just do good deeds to make you like me? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> tell them they need a purpose. No. And so, <clears throat> that's something that's essential to the Gospel. John MacArthur has been saying that, and I can't... I can't agree more. MacArthur has been saying that one of the components of salvation is that we have a fear that we've offended God and that we need a solution to that. And that component is totally missing in most of these seeker-type versions. You have this nice, warm, fuzzy situation that they get a little card in the check in the back, I would like to become a Christian. When you, you check this little thing and then you, you, you take a little class and uh, agree to a few Christian facts. But, but this whole type of preaching that we're reading here, like reconcile enemies, or that um, we are sinners with a terrifying expectation of judgment, Amen. that is, a, if you delete that, if you just go through and delete all those passages out of the Bible, you don't have the full gospel. No. You don't have the whole message. So, uh, we are on verse 27. So, if there's no sacrifice for sins, what's the alternative? A certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Okay, now, I think we got sidetracked when, um, on Zephaniah 3.8. It's your fault, Barb. You read that verse and we went off on this. Uh, well, it's not a sidetrack. It's, it's the need for this idea that we're God's, we're God's enemies. And if you if you really believe that, if you really felt like God is this consuming fire who's angry about sin and that you're on the wrong side of that as his enemy, and somebody said, here's the solution that will reconcile you to God so that rather than terrifying fear of judgment, we have hope of salvation, wouldn't that be good news? Amen. Best. Right. Yes, Larry. <laughs> They're already condemned, yeah. Yeah, that's, you see, that's just illustrates if you just take part of it, you don't get the whole message. You need the whole message, not just. Can the unregenerate man realize that he's an enemy? Only through a means. Only through a means. And the means that God uses is the preaching of the Word of God. Amen. Uh, the Holy Spirit uses gospel preaching to convict us of that fact. Uh, I'd say no. If left, if left to our own devices, we would never come to that. In fact, a proof of that, just look at the, the, the teaching on death and dying. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, whose book is used by all nurses, and uh, I mean, it's the work on this, says that, Death is a friend and you're going to just be ushered into a better place. Whether you're Hindu or Buddhist, it doesn't matter what religion you are. 
And so the typical person is not going to feel that way. But if we preach the Word of God the way it was given to us in the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit uses the message preached to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Amen. And, And the great tragedy of 21st century so far is the lack of that sort of preaching. Because how is anybody going to be convicted of this if they never hear it? And we've turned evangelicalism into a religion of warm, fuzzy feelings. And I'm very adamant against this, and I plan to spend the rest of my life fighting this battle. And part of the reason is I grew up in a church of warm, fuzzy feelings. It's all I heard when I was a kid. The good Lord wouldn't send anybody to hell, and we're just here to make the world a better place to live. And the only thing we need to know about religion is being a good Samaritan. And we're capable of doing that without any work of grace. It's not it's not going to save people. Nope. And they'll never come to the knowledge of the truth. Yeah, you talked about the book of Acts with Paul Yeah. I think they was on the edge of something when he says you got truly built to an unknown God, so I guess that they could almost assume that they knew they were missing something. Yes. Exactly. That's what he did. He said, yeah, this unknown God whom you worship in ignorance, him I declare unto you. He basically took their statue and said, well, the one, the one you don't know is the one you need. Amen. Yeah. See, they had that there just in case they missed one, and the one they missed would be mad at them. So Paul says, you did miss one. It's the true God, and he is mad at you. Yeah. And, you know, when we come with the gospel, you know, they love the truth when it enlightens them, but they hate it when it convicts them. Yeah. Amen. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the whole process. It'll either be good news or it'll get people angry. Yes, it will. Uh, uh, like they said when I was a new Christian, well, you're, when you hear the gospel, you're either going to get mad or you're going to get glad. That's right. Amen to that. <laughs> but nobody's neutral about it. Yeah, right. Thank you, Dean. A short passage here. It starts off, uh, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him who they have not believed? 
And how shall they believe on him with whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Amen. And, how sh- and how shall they preach except he be sent? As Amen. it is written, it is beautiful. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel, gospel of peace. peace. Gospel of peace. With how to be reconciled to God. Without the gospel... That was that was Romans ten, I think, about what thirteen through what what verses? Hey, (laughs) I get a gold star in Sunday school. I knew the verse. All right, here ten thirteen, Romans ten thirteen through. uh, Yes, exactly. Yeah, they they use the wrong connotation of peace. The gospel of peace meaning world peace. The Muslims and Hindus and Catholics and Protestants are all got to get together and and get along with each other. But no, that's not that's not going to do us any good. That's just going to be antichrist. Salisbury was speaking at uh, Saint Ben's and atheist told me to come and he said he will destroy you. And I says that's fine. And he then he went on swearing. At me in the break room, I'm used to all this stuff. Blah blah blah. You are the most arrogant man. Blah blah blah. That I know. And I said, you know what else? And I worship the most arrogant God because He's not going to budge for you. He says, you will rot in hell. And I'm telling you about hell and where your place is going to be. And it's not pleasant because to the believer, we're the sweet aroma of salvation. And He says, how dare you talk against a brother? I said, you are not a brother till you are born again. Because they use that verse of condemnation, speaking against the born again brother. You are a son of hell, and you three guys are brothers. Brothers of Satan, sons of Satan, These and are, I'm a brother of a born-again believer. You don't come around no. here always saying we're brothers and speak against a brother. We're talking about born-again brothers. These are your atheists? Yeah, the atheists. And, they, and they, God is so arrogant. He has a right to be arrogant because he's God. And you will <laughs> go to hell without him, and you're going to tell these people, and they hate you for it. They'll swear. Get it over with. They'll curse you and call you every dirty name in the book. And yes, you are arrogant because you got the truth. Two and two is four, and nobody's going to change it. All right, amen. <laughs> All right, uh, we lost Bird. He was going to read a verse here. I don't blame him on giving up. I mean, I, I, who did I give Revelation six to? Oh, Leho gave Revelation six fifteen through seventeen. So when God's wrath comes, people are going to call for the rocks to hide us and the mountains. And, and so all of this is in the Bible, and it's in there for a good reason. And the absolute uh, worst thing that we can do is pick and choose our way through the Bible to try to make the message change by deleting parts of it. You know, we definitely need to preach the whole counsel of God because God didn't inspire this so that we can manipulate it later to make it sound like I got this book on my desk because I was doing a little research in this, in this Robert Schuller, The Be Happy Attitudes. Okay? And I'm, I'm, I'm reading through this book, and, you know, I can tell where Rick Warren got his stuff because it sounds just like him. Only Schuller was, you know, went first. It's full of aphorisms. An aphorism is a man's wisdom. It's wisdom, you know, Always do this. Always do that. Don't do this, but do this. And here's how you're going to be happy. Here's how you're going to be successful. Here's how to think. And some of it has certain biblical principles to it. But but there's huge holes and things that are deleted and then things that are added. 
So you delete some things, add some others, and what you end up with is a form of godliness that denies the power thereof. And so that's what Schuler does. And now he's got a son, a spiritual son, who's taken over the mantle in the person of Rick Warren. Well, let's go to verse 28. Uh, I'm sure Luke 23.30 was good. I don't know what it was. That was verse first. Hebrews 10.28, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Let's read on and then we'll go back to this. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? It's regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the spirit of grace. This is a lesser to greater argument, which is very common in the Bible. It's a Jewish type of argumentation. The fact is that the lesser thing is the law of Moses. The greater thing is Christ than Moses. And we can read the Old Testament and just the history of the Old Testament tells us that if somebody set aside, meaning I won't, I won't obey, uh, I will, I'm going to rebel against Moses like Korah that, that Sam read about, uh, they, they died if, the, if there were two or three witnesses that confirmed that they'd set aside the law of Moses. And so therefore, if we do the same to Christ, we're in worse shape. We're, it's worse under the New Testament. Amen. No, God, God's the judge, and he's, he's firsthand. He sees it. All right, so Hebrews 10, 28. Uh, so I got some more cross-references. Uh, where should we start? Uh, Larry, do you want to do Numbers fifteen thirty-six? Skip Deuteronomy nineteen fifteen. Diane, Isaiah 27, 11. Mike, Matthew eighteen sixteen. And to these Hebrews two, two and three. Okay, so the first one is Numbers fifteen and verse thirty-six. So the assembly took them outside the camp and stoned them to death as the Lord commanded Moses. So they actually did it. <laughs> I, you, know, you know, if you lived back, then you'd get a pretty good idea. This is not a good thing, this rebelling against God. Yeah. I, I think that would clarify what law means then. Yeah. yeah. Right. They, they had a real graphic. Yeah. Well, this is bad. We can't do this. Or if the fire came down like with Korah's people, they dropped into the earth. Yes. But even though they knew the law, and they knew what the, 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 the result of breaking the law or not walking according to the commandments, they still disobeyed and they still died. Yeah, it's God's grace that changes our heart, otherwise we would never respond. And if you think about that, think about um, the, the remember the the story about the rich man and Lazarus? Amen. And when the guy dies, he's in Hades. Yes. And he says, let me go back, I've got brothers. And if I, if I could go back and tell them how bad this is, I think they'd all repent. And what did Jesus say? They have Moses. In the, in the law, and if they won't listen to Moses, they won't listen if somebody comes back from the dead. And that was an interesting prophecy because Jesus did come back to the dead and mostly they didn't listen. Amen. Okay, so the resurrection of the dead is the ultimate evidence that we have to go on. Yes. You know, just reading this passage and when you try to reconcile, you know, the Old Testament is reading the word law and grace or, yeah. you know, 
quickly. There was, you know, period B end, you know, they were stoned. Yeah. But in the New Testament, I'm not sure exactly where it changes that, but I do know that the condemnation of it is still there, even though the act of following... There's a delay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, the same thing in the Old Testament, you know, to murder somebody is the same thing in the New Testament. Yeah, the civil law now is charged with the civil law. The governments we live in is their job to punish evildoers, Amen. like murderers and stuff. But but as far as God's wrath, there's a delay, and so people don't believe it's real. They think you think it's not. They don't think it's. They just don't think it's real. And uh, some people think that. They they're gonna wait till their deathbed and repent. I, I ran into that before. There was a guy who was 81 and he'd been drinking ever since World War II, and he must have had a strong constituency because he was still alive. And his daughter asked me to go witness to him because he was in the hospital and looked like he was gonna die, and she'd been witnessing to him and he wouldn't listen to her. And she figured, well, nobody wants to hear their daughter tell them what that they need to repent, so maybe they'll listen to a preacher. So I went in there and I witnessed to the guy, told him about Jesus Christ, told him he needed to repent. He said, yeah, my daughter's been telling me that and I, he, she's probably right, but I don't want to do it right now. I said, well, when he's already, he's laying in the hospital, he's over 80 and he's, and, and he said, well, I, I took a turn for the better yesterday. I think I might get out of here. <laughs> and so he, he didn't want to become a Christian because in case he got out, he could go back to his drinking again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, exactly. And, and it just shows the fallacy of thinking if you wait and wait and wait and wait, there's one day you'll actually decide to repent. You just get harder. They persecuted the Christians. Totally incredulous about yeah. all of this action that yeah. took place. Even though they had the law, they had the understanding yeah. of what it was, they still totally rejected it. Irrational. Yeah, it is irrational. And if you think just think about the miracles of Jesus that people witnessed. Exactly. Yeah, and they and uh the the people in John six is unbelievable. They saw him multiply the bread, then he walked on water. And then when they wanted more bread, and he said, no, I'm going to give you my, my body for the life of the world, and they wouldn't listen to him anymore. Okay, bye. I want to hear, come back when you got some free bread for us. And that just shows you the, the fallacy of the idea, if you do enough good deeds, everybody will want to be a Christian. They'll, they'll, sure, they'll let you come paint their house. But you, think, but you can't buy somebody's repentance. It's something God brings by His grace. Okay, Skip. I'm not going to forget about you, Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of iniquity or any sin, which he has committed on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. 
Okay, so that was a built-in uh, thing in the Old Covenant and it's, re- it's repeated in the New Testament. Paul mentions it in 2 Corinthians. Why? Well, because somebody could use the law, somebody could lie about somebody else and get them stoned if you could just let one witness. They may have bad motives, so you have to have two or three because that way it's confirmed that it actually happened. So you have, here you had a system of justice instituted in the Old Testament. Um, Isaiah 27.11 Wow, they're not a people of discernment. I think we got that problem today. Amen. Matthew eighteen sixteen. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. There's the same principle reiterated in the gospel, Matthew eighteen. Even in church discipline, you have to have witnesses. Not, it's a, it's in, order, in order that innocent people aren't treated wrong. The Ahab and Jezebel, they paid to have him lie as witnesses to kill him and take his land. So even that in the old covenant yeah. wasn't uh, like it should. It's be not, it's not foolproof, but no. it's, it's a built-in. And that was awful. Yep. Okay, Hebrews two, two and three. Uh, that's the same argument, is it? Lesser to greater. Uh, the the spoken by angels would be the old covenant. The Jews had a tradition that angels gave Moses the law, and in that in that tradition, although it's not, I don't know if you could say the Bible actually says that in the Old Testament, but that's what they firmly believe, and it comes up in a lot of intertestamental literature. In the new, so in, in the New Testament, they just take that and say. That was given by angels. Christ is better. Amen. And the Jews would accept that's how they understood that the angels gave Moses the law. So that's what that's about. But this is even stronger. And therefore there's greater, greater, let's just put it this way, greater blessings equals greater responsibility. Amen. So living under the new covenant with God's blessings and the gospel, His mercy, the time and space He gives us to repent, means we have all the more greater responsibility to respond in faith to the gospel. Now, we mentioned a couple of times here, a couple of you brought up, well, you know, but the heart is hard and uh, so we can't do it anyhow. My answer is, there's nothing about God's grace that lessens anybody's responsibility. Amen. And we need to preach the whole counsel of God. Both things are true. Amen. It's true that we can't respond other than by God's grace, but it's also true that we need to give stern warnings to everyone because God uses means, and the warnings are part of the means He uses to soften our heart and convict us by the Holy Spirit. And I don't know how anybody's going to be convicted if they don't ever hear it. Amen. That, that's the most... You know, God does it. I, I've seen it. I, I've seen it at outreaches. I've, I've seen it at, in church here. I've, just, I've seen... You can just watch somebody listening and and see God convicting them as they they fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so, if you believe God can do that, you you preach it. Amen. Walk out of the door at Kmart. 
Yeah, the guy was walking out of the door at Kmart. I went in outreach, and the Holy Spirit apprehended him. He came over and sought out a pastor and gave his life to the Lord. That was it last summer at Kmart. Okay, uh, I was going to turn to Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. I see what that is here. Oh, this is the okay. This is the two or three witnesses thing, but I wanted to read a bigger part of it here. If there is found in your midst any in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord by transgressing His covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any heavenly host which I have not commanded, and if it is told you and you have heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly, and behold, it is if it is a true and and the thing certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed in your gates, that is, the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So there is a due process under the civil rules of the Old Covenant. Yes, right. The church as a whole is guilty of not using disciplinary action against the flock in a biblical way. Uh, that is something I've been hearing as well. I've, I've had, sure had some interesting phone calls in the last two weeks. So I've, I've been getting phone calls from people around the country who are in churches that have departed from biblical practices and preaching. And they're evangelical churches. One, one, one of the calls was this. I think I maybe mentioned this. I don't know if you were here, Brian, but there was a lady who's the church was people, the general, generally speaking in the congregation, there was a lax attitude towards biblical morality and people were engaged in sinful behavior and in flaunting it. Okay. And so this lady went to the elders and said, I think we need to have some church discipline. We need to confront this sort of thing and, and, and tell people what God says in his, in his word about what's acceptable behavior. Well, what happened was, the, the, was, first she went to the pastor and he stonewalled her, so her and her husband went to the elders and they, they basically said to them, you are a Pharisee. You're, you're a Pharisee and you're a hypocrite and you, who are you to judge anybody? And she said, well, okay. And then the sermon the next Sunday was, well, we don't need all these judgmental people that think they're holier than other people, blah, blah, blah. And there was no willingness whatsoever to do Matthew 18 or anything like it in, the, in the, that particular congregation. And because they didn't want to upset anybody. And they, and they said, well, we're all sinners, so just let people come in however they, however they may be. Well, it's true, but on the other hand, is the truth being brought to bear the whole counsel of God so that people be convicted and that lives will be changed? And so, yeah, Matthew, church discipline. And you know what? That what's going on? People are being brought under Matthew 18 for wrong reasons. They're being kicked out of churches for the reason of asking the pastor to preach the gospel. Amen. Yeah, and so if you come along and say, I want to hear the Word of God in the gospel, and I think we need to have 
including the law, the law and the gospel, so people would know what God's standards are, then you're kicked out. You're out. Yeah, literally. And then I got a call, so I got a call from somebody else. Uh, I, where did I get that call? I can't remember where they, it doesn't matter where they live, but just this week. And it was the same thing. And this person was very persistent and just kept going back to the pastor and saying, we need to hear the Word of God and why won't you preach the Gospel? And so, they're being threatened with being expelled from the church. That's true. Amen. Yes. That's true. But if you're a true son, he disciplines you for your good. Right. And so it's an act of love. And a church will take a member and, and correct them and, and, you know, confront them. Uh, but today, what is love? Well, we don't want to judge. You know, uh, we can't judge that. We, you know, that's, we lose our peace. We lose our love. We lose our unity. No, you perverted not only the gospel, you perverted all the definitions of those words. And when we don't know the definition of words or it's fuzzy, then we can go, you know, love can be hate, up can be down, in can be out. And, and that's why uh, when you discipline somebody, you love them. You care enough to discipline. And even when you give the gospel out, you have to care enough that that person be, be, uh, be saved from damnation. You know, the reaction that they give you has nothing to do with whether you love them or not. You know, they may call you every name in the book, but you have still done an act of love. When Christ came and died on the cross, and, you know, they, they scorned him, and, and they jeered at him, and they slapped him, his act of love wasn't diminished in him, even though they didn't understand it, and didn't accept it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, Sometimes the definitions, are, and they creep into the church, and, and just like the word peace is perverted, now the word love is perverted too. Well, and in, all, all, in fact, the book I'm writing, yes, now the scheme I'm using for the chapter headings is the idea of redefining. Basically, everything is redefined. And when you redefine it, then you sound like you're talking Christian. It's just like if you ever talk to a Mormon. Yes. They'll say, I believe in Jesus Christ and I believe he died, you know, and so on and so forth. And so they're trying to convince you they're Christian, but if they, if they have a different definition for every single word. Yeah. You know, when you were saying that, what came to my mind was like cloaked or stealth uh, relativism. It's, it's yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind, of, it's kind of brought in a stealthy kind of way. <laughs> yeah, under the radar. <laughs> Coming in under the radar. Yeah.
Well, when I was in seminary, I just kind of fiddled around, so I didn't get much out of it. That's an interesting. At least he's honest. Why don't you preach in the Bible? Well, I kind of slept through seminary, you know. I uh, I was fishing when I was supposed to go to my theology class. I don't know what to preach. (laughs) Yeah, well, I know because when I was when I was in a, a church when I was a teenager and, early, and younger, the sermon was more likely out of the Reader's Digest or U.S. News and World Report or Ladies Home Journal. Uh, that'll convict you. <laughs> Bake something tasty. You ever notice those magazines? I know this is way off the subject, but it's the funniest thing. You can look at a ladies' magazine. Look at the cover. Everyone will have some fancy recipe for a dessert and a, and a story about a diet. <laughs> How cruel! <laughs> Here, you have this big chocolate thing that we'll tell you how to make it, and when you get done, we'll give you a diet. <laughs> you know, check it out sometime. All right. That's, yeah, Ladies Home Journal. He has a fluff piece in one. Let's look. Let's introduce verse 29 now. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, as regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was uh, sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Now, this is piling up terms that are very serious and is talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, the warning is to people who at least had a claim of having had a Christian experience, but are tempted to go back or to leave. And so, this verse is the tie-in with the, with the concept of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In fact, let's look it up. Uh, Brian, can you look up Matthew twelve thirty-one and 32? And let's see how there's a link here. Because here it talks about insulting the Spirit of grace. Matthew twelve thirty one to thirty two. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy or indignity can be forgiven none, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not and cannot be forgiven. And whoever speaks the word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Spirit, the Holy One, will not be forgiven, either in this world in age or in the world in age to come. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? Wonder why? Let's think about that. Why? Why does it so strong uh, warning against blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Uh, yes. Okay, the question was, uh, was such a person ever saved in the first place? I, uh, because if you believe in the perseverance of the saints, and that God will, like Jesus said, I, of all that the Father gave me, I lost nothing. All right? Amen. So that would lead us to the conclusion that the person who blasphemes the Holy Spirit would be the Judases of the world. Uh, and Judas would probably be the best illustration of what this really is in real life 
Next week, I'm going to preach on Peter and Judas out of Matthew 26, and I'm going to make a contrast. Because Peter and all the disciples denied the Lord. Amen. And what was the difference between them and Judas? The rest of them came back. Uh, but if you, if you, on the surface, if, if you can think about it, Scott, had you been there at the time with the disciples, and you watched them going out two by two and doing miracles and preaching, if you, and they were there, Judas was, they wouldn't have on the surface known that Judas was, wasn't one of them. There would be no reason to think that he was any different than the rest of them, uh, up until his betrayal. Alright? And so, likewise, in the church or on the scene of history, there are those who to all uh, appearances that we could know, because we don't know the heart, only God knows the heart, there are those who are fully, well, this guy that you know, the atheist, used to be a pastor. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he was a pastor, and I, I heard his name back in the 70s. He was famous. Famous pastor in the Twin Cities, and now he's an atheist. But when he was a pastor, nobody would have thought it. Nobody would have thought, well, this guy later is going to be an atheist who blasphemes Christ. So, yeah, I I would say they never were truly saved, but we wouldn't have known that. Yes. Yeah, they went out from us because they were near of us. Yeah, exactly. But what, but it, but we wouldn't have known it ahead of time. And here's another thing, as we got to close, but we'll go back to this verse next week. Here's another thing. The warning is necessary because God will use it to convict people Amen. and to keep them from falling into this. And we may think, well, I know that I'm saved and I'm totally, I know I'm born again, which is good. We have assurance of salvation. But we should listen to the warning and say, well, gee, that would never be me. We should listen seriously to the warning and let God use it to keep us from doing this. The warning has its... Important. Uh, the warning applies to Peter as well as Judas. Amen. Let's put it that way. Amen. And so we would come back to the Lord if we if we begin to stray. This morning, uh, uh, Ryan's going to preach on Galatians three about the the blessing and the curse, and the promise of the gospel and the curse of the law. And I've seen the PowerPoint. I think it's going to be good. So we'll see you at ten thirty upstairs.